Hello and welcome to a special edition of Ukraine Without Hype. Today we'll be interviewing a special guest and a friend of the pod to talk about Armenia, which we mentioned last episode we wanted to go in a little more detail on. Special guest, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Karina Abadisian. Hello, Karina. Hi, Karina. For our listeners to know who you are, could you give a little bit of your background, uh, organizational affiliation, you know, the, the basic one, two, threes? Sure. Um, I am a PhD in political science. My PhD was on opposition movements in Russia, so anti-Putin movements in the region specifically. Um, since then, I've moved on to cover disinformation, political communication um, in the region, mostly in the Caucasus, but also in Russia. And in the past few years, I've started focusing more on just Armenia. Um, and I have been living in Armenia since 2015. I'm from California originally. And I am a copy editor at EVN Report, which is one of Armenia's only independent English language um, news outlets. Uh, would this be Glendale, California? It would not be. Okay. <laughs> um, I had just, to ask. Just, I had to ask. Yeah, just a bit north from there. Um, pretty white um, and Korean area. Okay, so you chose to move to Armenia, and have you been like following the political? political scene very closely. This is basically what our interview is going to be about. Just want to set the, that up. Yeah. Um, essentially, I moved here wanting to study civil society in Armenia, you know, with my background being in social movement mobilization. And I was lucky enough to be here during Electric Yerevan in 2015, which was kind of mass mobilization against um, energy price hikes by what was then um, a Russian state-owned um, electricity company. And then obviously in 2018, Armenia's Democratic Revolution, I was here for that as well. Um, and since then, for various reasons, and especially since the 2020 war, Armenian civil society has kind of um, become more muted um, and quiet. So um, that is kind of the background context for you know my you know, motivation for moving here and staying here and then kind of the changes that um, we've we've all been facing. I was actually there for the 2018 revolution as well. I was uh, covering it as a journalist. And oh. yeah, I, I remember it being a lot less uh, violent than a lot of revolutions I saw. Uh, civil society seemed to have things very much under control, very organized. And I noticed even like the police joined in for different parts of it. Yeah. It was a very interesting experience. Yeah, it was um, very kind of peaceful. I mean, there were some kind of isolated cases of, of police brutality, but it wasn't, you know, in the kind of broader global context, nothing really, um, you know, major. But um, yeah, those first yeah, few days. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's just kind of testament to the broad support for the democratic revolution. So it included, you know, all kind of strata of society, um, all classes, all ages. Um, and I think that uh, was a big contributor to it being um, peaceful because you kind of had like, you know, mothers with carriages and kids, um, you know, participating. Um, and it kind of had this like carnival atmosphere as well, a lot of it. So, yeah, it was it was a totally different um, atmosphere from from some others. Yeah, I kind of want to put a pin right there because I kind of see the beginning of the Pashinyan administration or Pashinyan government as being where a lot of things began to change. 
But I kind of want to go back to the setup for where we are now. So can you explain to us, uh, in your own words as an Armenian, your version of events of what happened? Or are, are you an Armenian citizen now? I don't want to like jump the gun yeah. on that. Yeah, I am actually. Yeah. Okay, yes. I'm just, sorry for making any distinctions there. But um, uh, so, yeah. So from the Armenian perspective, like what is really the basis of the conflict right now going on between Armenia and Azerbaijan that is culminating in what we'll be talking about later. Yeah, um, the status of Nagorno-Karabakh is the core issue um, that sparked the conflict three, three decades ago. So it was basically a movement of um, self-determination in which the Armenians of the territory um, resisted and rejected rule by Azerbaijan. And, um, you know, as a result of kind of winning the first Karabakh war, which ended in 1994, uh, Armenians were able to exercise that self-rule for more than three decades. Um, but the status was always left under question. So, um, the first, uh, presidential administration of Armenia after the fall of the Soviet Union was, pretty conciliatory and was ready to make concessions to Azerbaijan to um, kind of, you know, um, finalize um, a status for Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, but this was rejected. Um, and I can go into the dynamics about that a bit later, because I think there's some interesting parallels with the way nationalisms developed in both Azerbaijan and, and in Armenia. But overall, I think um, that resistance to Azerbaijani rule is at the core of it. Um, and then obviously, you know, economic political weakness in Armenia, um, its inability to kind of um, diplomatically pursue any um, constructive negotiations. Um, obviously, this is, you know, partly, um, you know, Azerbaijan as well. Um, the, the two sides were just not able to reach any kind of significant concessions to one another. So it's a very zero sum dynamic to the conflict. So then this status quo basically existed from the first Karabakh war to the second. So what do you think really changed in that time that would have led to Azerbaijan making that decision in 2020 of saying, okay, now's the time we're going to go in and solve this problem by force uh, rather than diplomacy? Yeah, there's a couple reasons. Um, first is legitimate grievances. So um, Azerbaijanis were ethnically cleansed from surrounding territories and from within Karabakh um, during the war. Uh, and similarly, Armenians were ethnically cleansed from, um, from Azerbaijan. So there's kind of, you know, forced exchange of populations in a sense. So people were displaced. And for years, Azerbaijani displaced Azeris from, from Nagorno-Karabakh um, were often used as, you know, kind of instrumentalized. So their living conditions were never really improved. Um, and many commentators said that this was kind of Baku's um, way of kind of using them to show the world, look, you know, we still have these refugees and um, to kind of uh, build, build their case. And the second is the fact that Azerbaijan was able to... Um, address this problem that it had before of getting its oil and gas to European markets. So in 2000, sorry, 1998, um, an agreement was made to build the Baku-Tbilisi-Jehan pipeline, which would take um, Azerbaijani oil through Georgia to Turkey and then onwards to Europe. So 
the revenue that that created and the discovery of new oil fields um, later on kind of consolidated the authoritarian regime of Azerbaijan. So President Aliyev had this new, um, you know, influx of money and was able to um, consolidate his power to a greater extent. Um, this obviously made Azerbaijan uh, vulnerable to fluctuations in oil and gas prices. So when this happened in 2016, for example, there was mass discontent, which was um, suppressed. And it was also an opportunity for people to see how the nationalist card would be pulled. So in many ways, Aliyev uses the external enemy of Armenia as, as another kind of way of, of um, justifying his rule. But that kind of started also the power imbalance between Armenia and Azerbaijan. So Azerbaijan was just like, you know, flush with money. And um, I think currently, for example, oil and gas constitutes for around 40% of their GDP. So it's, you know, a lot. And um, Armenia just wasn't a kind of equal partner and just in terms of balance of power. And this asymmetry only grew over time. And Azerbaijan was building up its armed forces and, you know, everyone kind of expected this. This is something that's kind of um, strange in hindsight to admit is like everyone kind of knew this was coming. A war was coming. Something major was coming because there were intermittent events where Azerbaijan would use force. So in 2016, there was a four day war in which um, attacks were launched on the line of contact in Karabakh and a couple of villages were um, taken. And um, that was kind of a precursor to 2020, um, kind of a way of Azerbaijan, you know, testing its capabilities and testing Armenian capabilities. And um, in 2020, in the summer, there were more skirmishes um, in July. And then things kind of went quiet until uh, September 27th. So on the just after midnight, so in the morning of uh, September 27, 2020, Azerbaijan launched um, a massive uh, attack um, all along the line of contact on Azerbaijan and began shelling um, in missile strikes on civilian um, centers. Yeah, um, I do kind of see 2020 war, at least from a technological perspective and a tactical one, as kind of a precursor to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, it's when we really started to see uh, mass use of these drones, um, especially drone attacks on tanks and seeing them be able to destroy armor. I, I, this, this part of it is not so you know, necessary to talk about, but just from, uh, from like the, the war perspective, we started to see a lot of the, the, the trends there end up in Ukraine. But uh, so with this 2020 war, and it ends with Azerbaijan taking, uh, I think it was like, like 60% of Karabakh, something like that. It took, it took the seven districts around the former Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Oblast, as well as the district of Hadrut and Sushi as well. Yeah, Sushi was the main one they wanted because it was the historic uh, capital of some uh, Turkic uh, state of some kind. It had, it had symbolic meaning for Azeris as a former kind of cultural center. So uh, Azerbaijan attacked. It conquers quite a bit of Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, what, what caused it to stop? Like, why didn't it keep going and take the entire territory? Um, so there was a negotiated peace settlement. So um, you had Azerbaijan making um, really kind of quick gains, especially in the last couple of weeks of the war. Um, but this was stopped. And 
I think, I mean, as I say to others, because Russia was involved in the tripartite agreement between Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Russia, um, there's a lot of opacity around the, the agreement and kind of how it came to be. Um, there are conflicting reports about whose hands Shushi was in at the end. Um, there have been um, Armenian fighters who said that, you know, when they heard about the capitulation, they were still kind of controlling Shushi. So there, there's a lot of kind of because the Armenian government was so bad at communicating and having a kind of a strategy of communication that it opened up the field to just kind of all kinds of um, conjecture and um, ultimately conspiracies, but no one really knows. Um, but it was obvious from, you know, just knowing Russia as a, as a power in the region and, um, you know, more recently it's, it's sort of behavior and it's kind of control in or its power in Nagorno-Karabakh as a, as a kind of mediator, the main mediator, it, you know, didn't want to relinquish controls, right? So um, Russia doesn't want Azerbaijan to gain control over Nagorno-Karabakh, obviously, because it wants to kind of play that key mediator role, um, which gives it leverage over both parties. So that's how we ended up with these um, Russian, quote unquote, peacekeepers in the region. That's right. That's right. So what happened was, you know, despite essentially emerging as the victor, Azerbaijan, um, emerged, you know, as the winner in this, it did not achieve its ultimate goal of gaining control over the entirety of Nagorno-Karabakh. So the status of it was, was, um, never resolved in the tripartite agreement. In fact, it was, um, written that the status would be kind of left negotiations moving forward. So that was, it was completely left open. Um, and that the Russian peacekeepers would be, um, in place in key locations, including the Lachin corridor, which is the only road in or, in or out of the territory, um, which is under blockade now. And, um, yeah, that's essentially kind of where the, the cards fell. So Armenia lost um, territory, but the government in Stepanakert um, was, you know, is still there, um, is still governing. Um, and it's been, it, we're in the fourth month of a blockade that it's under, um, but that's where we're at now. So how did these, how did all of this um, look like to the two Armenians, like on the ground in Artsakh, in Armenia proper? Um, how did they react to, well, this this kind of mediated ceasefire, basically? Uh, how did they see the introduction of these Russian peacekeepers? And did they think Azerbaijan would keep their word? How how like what was the mood like um, at the time? Um, it was absolute shock. I think part of the consequence of the Armenian government being so terrible with messaging um, was the, you know, kind of complete loss of trust in the Armenian government and its messaging because uh, Armenian audiences were being told over and over that, you know, we're going to, I mean, I, to some degree, I think people understood that you just have to be like, yeah, we're going to win because you need to keep morale up. But um, ultimately it was a surprise that we lost Shushi. I mean, let, just to give you kind of personal anecdote, that morning I woke up to numerous texts from friends, from family. And there were, uh, I was in a group chat with a couple of friends and one of them was like, should we wake up Karina? This was like 2 a.m., 3 a.m. Should we wake her up? And the other friend was like, no, no, like, just let her sleep. This is this is horrible. So, yeah, it was it was waking up to this new reality. Um, we had lost Shushi. We had lost Hadrut um, and kind of fear, confusion about what was next. And I just maybe want to add, um, speaking to some people from Karabakh, there was a sense of betrayal by the Armenian authorities for failing to 
um, live up to its role as its main security guarantor. And was the Russian involvement seen as kind of a positive, like, you know, well, we might have um, like lost this war, but at least um, we have someone on our side. Um, it depends who you ask. I think overall it was just a muted, reluctant acceptance of this new status quo. And I think despite what Russia is as a power um, and its motivations, I think there is something to be said for its presence on the ground in terms of stopping the complete ethnic cleansing of the territory, at least at that time. I mean, that's increasingly coming under question. But I just remember in 2021, looking at the footage of Kabul airport when the Americans were pulling out of Afghanistan and seeing the people running after the, the airplane. And just, I mean, the first thought was this, this could have been us if, if the ceasefire wasn't kind of imposed on Russia's terms, obviously, but, um, the, the alternative was, was scarier. And in many ways, maybe, you know, <laughs> it's, it's inevitable and just kind of happening in slow motion. For the past um, two, three years since that war, Azerbaijan has um, committed what Armenia calls a bunch of provocations and which has culminated in this blockade. But what, what exactly are these provocations? Can you tell us uh, a little bit about the, the actions Azerbaijan has taken since the ceasefire was signed to kind of exacerbate the situation and bring us to where we are now? Yeah, um, just for example, um, there were these kind of a series of targeted policies against Armenians. Um, so first there was this systematic erasure of Armenian cultural, cultural heritage in territories that Azerbaijani forces had taken over. And this is um, documented in Caucasus Heritage Watch, which is a um, academic collaboration in the US. Purdue is one of the, the collaborators. In March 2022, uh, a gas pipeline that was operated by Azerbaijan and supplying Karabakh was broken for a week. And then after that, it was broken for even longer. So it, this is in sub, sub-zero um, temperatures. So it left locals freezing. There were numerous cases of uh, Azerbaijani army loudspeakers blaring um, intimidating messages to Armenian villagers. Um, so these are in, these are in places where the Azerbaijani army is like really close to Armenian settlements and they would make statements like leave or you're going to be killed. Um, so just kind of, you know, increasing this psychological pressure. And um, there has also been obviously um, violations in terms of the ceasefire agreement. Um, so um, Azerbaijan has continued to keep Armenian um, POWs in, you know, contra to the to, to the ceasefire agreement. And this is even after Armenia has um, transferred all Azerbaijani POWs back to Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan has also moved military positions forward contra to the ceasefire agreement. Um, they've taken over a couple villages um, in the in the months after the ceasefire agreement. And obviously, last year in 2022, September, Azerbaijan attacked Armenia proper and has occupied um, territory within the Republic of Armenia. Um, but the 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 more I guess maybe you're talking more about like the social and psychological pressure. Um, I think that would be also evidenced by the various, you know, armenophobic statements that Baku has been making, Azerbaijan authorities have been making about Armenians, which has been pretty <laughs> um, reminiscent, I think, of language that was used in the Holocaust and the Rwandan genocide, um, referring to Armenians, for example, as cancerous tumors or Armenians being infected with a disease that, quote, needs to be treated. Yeah, there's there's probably more. 
Yeah, this rhetoric sounds pretty exterminationist to me. Um, I'm not an expert, but uh, one of the things I did want to to focus in on is this um, rather extreme rhetoric being employed by the Aleyev um, regime against Armenians. I mean, was this like always a feature of Armenian Azerbaijani relations? Is this or is this something? like knew that um, Aliyev has really been pushing on in, in the past three years? It's, it's been there um, in the past few decades, and I think it's just hardened in the last decade. So um, after the first war, nationalisms on both sides have uh, become a little more extreme. And obviously there's anti, you know, Azeri sentiment in Armenia as well. I don't want to discount that. But I think the difference is that in Armenia, that nationalism exhibited itself more as um, national elites kind of using national security concerns as a way to justify their rule and, and suppressing any kind of nuanced discussion about the conflict and suppressing any voices that you know suggest concessions. Whereas in Azerbaijan, it took a much more extreme um, xenophobic nature um, with you know, uh, statements like the ones I just mentioned, um, including statements like um, at the start of the war, Aliyev had made this um, statement saying that we'll draw, we'll quote, drive the Armenians out like dogs. So that kind of Armenophobic um, sentiment has been uh, around, but it's, it's definitely gotten much more extreme in the past few years and has culminated in things like you know, Armenians being kind of demonized in school books and videos of children kind of reciting poems about um, Armenians being the enemy. So it's just this kind of and again, this is not, it. you know, I, I don't want to say all this to discount any kind of legitimate grievances that Azerbaijani civilians might have. But a lot of the grievance is kind of top down encouraged by the state. It's state sponsored. And I think that's the difference between Azerbaijan and Armenia. So in these years since the 2020 war, as all this kind of 1930s Germany-esque uh, rhetoric has come out of uh, the, re the Aleya regime, but they've also kind of taken this tack of saying um, the people of Karabakh, when they're absorbed back into Azerbaijan, will still be uh, citizens with full rights and all that. Um, have there been any remaining Armenians within these territories taken by Azerbaijan? And if so, how have they been treated by the government, if there's any at all? There's none. There's none. So was this, I mean, there's always this tricky question of how, quote unquote, voluntary these things are. But has this been a matter of them being more refugees, just getting out of town because they know what's going to happen? Or has it been uh, directly forced by the Azeri government? It's yeah, again, it's it's really interesting. It's and it's a question I kind of struggle with because um, you know, I've never had to confront this before. And on the one hand, I know that, you know, women and children were evacuated and a lot of men were evacuated. And I also know that as with any conflict, there's especially elderly people don't want to leave because they just don't, they're old, they, you know, they have nowhere to go. Um, so they do stay behind and any um Cases that uh, that are apparent, that are you know um, known of civilians staying behind, they've been murdered, um, and and there's documented evidence of this. So there there have been um, you know elderly civilians who were 
beheaded or gunned down, POWs gunned down. And these were filmed by Azerbaijani soldiers and kind of voluntarily um, posted to telegram channels and disseminated. So there's evidence of this. Um, and in other case, there's a, there's a third case, which is um, soldiers who um, had gotten lost or were, I don't know, somewhere in the forest when the war ended and, and they were just in hiding for two months because they didn't know where what side they were on, you know, geographically, what, where they had fallen. And I know of cases, for example, um, um, there's like a group of, of um, yeah, maybe I don't want to say, but um, young conscripts who had um, kind of survived for two months in the wilderness, they'd found a house and gone into the attic. And apparently Azerbaijani soldiers came into the house and searched it. And they kind of, you know, put a rock or something heavy on the the little door to the attic and just were really, you know, super quiet. And the soldiers eventually went away. So, and then, you know, just walking, you know, frostbite, et cetera, they somehow found their way back to, um, you know, Armenians um, and, and got back. So those are the three... <laughs> Um, cases that are so people either left voluntarily, they stayed behind and were killed, or yeah, they they eventually made their way back. And as we're we're getting through this kind of background section of this discussion, so right now, um, the the first of two news points I want to talk about though is this blockade that we've already kind of mentioned in passing, and it's something that you as a civil society expert could could definitely say something on here, in that up until just this week. Really, a couple of days ago, the blockade of Karabakh on the Lachin Corridor was, according to what they said, done by environmental activists. So I, I just want to ask, like, yeah, what are these environmental activists? It's hard for me to understand that that particular. Is this any? Is there any real group here that the Azeri government is using, or is it just the Azeri government? And what environmental concerns could there possibly be? No, no, no. So, there, no. <laughs> so there, I do, I do want to point out that there is a, like a hint of a legitimate grievance because um, there are mines that have been operating in Nagorno-Karabakh that obviously Azerbaijan claims, you know, it is on its territory. So the, the accusation has gone from, you know, um, you're not recognizing our territorial integrity to you're operating mines and exploiting um, natural resources on our um, national territory, essentially. So the eco-activists, it wasn't so much about, um, I mean, again, the argument was kind of mixed again about being about um, environmental destruction or, you know, pollution or whatever from the mines. But, you know, if, if anyone looks at the the mining industry in Baku and the oil and gas industry there it's 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 it's, it's a petro state like <laughs> literally yeah it's a petro state which is why having eco activists block coincidentally block the only road in and out of Nahorn and Karbak always struck me as a little a little fishy to say the least and it's it's also um you know funny if it wasn't so tragic and them saying that no we're not blocking the road we're we're holding a protest we're we're stepping aside anytime you know a red cross vehicle needs to get through but it's just like okay if you're not blocking it just why don't you do the protest on the sidewalk why does it have to be there um and you know going back to the kind of social movement context azerbaijan is one of the least free countries in the world it's been ranked by Freedom House with a score of nine out of 100. So that's the same as Yemen and Myanmar. And even Iran is ranked as more free. There is no independent 
There's no grassroots organic movements in Azerbaijan, is what you're saying. Zero. It doesn't exist. Protests are brutally suppressed, you know, and just just to go back, you know, something that's not super maybe threatening to to the Aliyev's regime. There were March 8 um, protests and, you know, women's protests about, you know, women's rights in Baku that were suppressed. So, you know, there, anything that's outside of the remit of, you know, the regime is just is it, it, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. So the fact that, you know, these are these self-proclaimed eco-activists was, you know, laughable. Um, and yeah, they set up camp on the single road in or out of the territory, effectively blockading the region. And in Azerbaijan, did people, I don't know how, how much you understand like the, the media infrastructure there or, or however it may be, but in Azerbaijan, did anyone even try to pretend that they believed that it was environmental activists? I know um, through a couple of journalists, friends of mine, that Azerbaijani officials sometimes would still play the part even to journalists kind of, you know, it's kind of clear that they know that this, the premises for this is false. Um, and in some cases they would kind of be clear about it. You know, like they know, they know what's going on. And in terms of Azerbaijani civil society, I'm not sure that they know. I, I, I honestly believe that a large segment of the population believes that you know, the evil Armenians are exploiting our natural resources and polluting the territory and, you know, good on these eco-activists. So there does seem to be legitimate buy-in of what that was. But then that comes down to, again, this, this event that happened a couple of days ago of Azerbaijan setting up an actual military checkpoint on the Lachin Corridor. Um, are they continuing with this environmental um, story? Or are they just embracing a new narrative of this military checkpoint? Like going from the like little green men to, oh, no, those are just our soldiers. Um, I just today saw an Azerbaijani um, activist, like an anti-government activist, kind of question the need for these eco-activists. So my assumption was that they're still there. I think my expectation is that they'll just fade away. <laughs> and we'll just forget that this was even a thing because um, some images have been released by Azerbaijani officials that um, of, of a kind of passport control uh, checkpoint. So there's there's a photo of a kind of, of, of like a booth, a passport checking booth, and it says passport control on the side in uh, Azerbaijani, Turkish and in English. Um, but the authorities have yet to explain how this is going to work how they're going to deal with what's to come um, currently. And actually since 2020, Azerbaijani land borders have been closed because of COVID 2020. It's been one of the most, you know, extreme kind of um, responses to the pandemic um, in terms of like, you know, so even movement. to Georgia and Russia, they're closed. Yes, they're okay. closed. Land borders are completely closed. Um, so how are they going to deal with this? You know, no, they haven't said anything. No one, you know, and <laughs> the, impression I'm maybe I'm getting is that it's just kind of chaos and, and uh, they didn't have a strategy for this really. One thing that has been coming up more often from Azerbaijani communications is a lay of another officials laying more claim to larger parts of territory in Armenia proper. So not just Nagorno-Karabakh, but um, the whole Southern half of the country, essentially uh, lay have made a speech saying that it's actually Azerbaijan. 
Um, so is, is, are these kind of statements being taken as a, like an immediately actionable threat by people in Armenia or is it considered kind of, uh, a bunch of smoke? I think it's funny because the Armenian government's reaction has been really muted, um, as it just in general, it's just diplomatically, we're not, you know, the strongest, um, or, you know, aggressive nation. And I think in part that has a lot to do with, um, the kind of helpless situation, the sense that there's, you know, what can you do? Um, which doesn't excuse it. Obviously I'm just kind of contextualizing it, but I think Armenians have for years, pointed out this danger, that this was always there. Um, and you had regional analysts and experts and journalists kind of treat these allegations as like overreactions or kind of emotional, you know, um, you know, you can't be objective because you feel so strongly about this or whatever. But then you know, <laughs> Armenia was invaded um, in 2022. So, you know, there all you you know, you just I think the facts speak them for themselves. Azerbaijan has been increasingly making territorial claims on the Republic of Armenia, calling it, it uh, Western Azerbaijan, for example. And President Aliyev recently saying that Armenians would one day wake up to an Azerbaijani flag flying over their head. And Armenia South is particularly vulnerable because it's a kind of narrow piece of land and it separates Azerbaijan from its exclave of Nakhichevan, which Azerbaijan wants access to overland. Um, currently, it, trucks, Azerbaijani trucks go through Iran. So the detour is actually not that far. If you look at the map, it's not that far. But um, they have been pushing for a so-called Zangizur corridor. So the Az Azerbaijani name for Stunik, which is that southern province of Armenia, Zangizur. So they're pushing for a Zangizur corridor, which is their interpretation of the ceasefire agreement in which actually it says that Armenia is to um, ensure um, a corridor, not a, sorry, not a corridor, um, transportation route between Azerbaijan and Nakhchivan, which would be manned by Russian peacekeepers, right? So Azerbaijan has taken that to mean um, no Armenians are going to be there. So essentially there's going to be a road, a corridor going through Armenia's territory, kind of cutting it in the south. And it would have no sovereign control over that road. And Armenia, rightly so, rejects that interpretation. And that's that's kind of, you know, in terms of the ceasefire agreement, again, Armenia's pretty much fulfilled all of its obligations. I mentioned handing over of POWs, but um, the territories that Armenia agreed to hand over, it did. Um, it hasn't moved position, military positions forward. This is the one remaining thing that it is left to do, is to provide that transportation route. But because of this, you know, countering interpretation of it, there's been no headway in that sense. And Azerbaijan has kind of used that for propaganda purposes, saying, look, see, Armenia doesn't want peace. It's it's stalling. It's buying time, et cetera. So this brings us to some of the latest statements made by the Armenian government. Um, and as an outsider to this, um, the Armenian president, Pashinyan, uh, seemed to uh, basically be saying we surrender Nagorno-Karabakh. Let's talk this out. Let, let's negotiate uh, before Azerbaijan relaunches the war. Is that is that like a correct or an accurate look at the at, at the situation? Yeah, that's right. So um, it was a couple of weeks ago, I think, already. So you're right. Pashinyan gave what was the strongest signal so far that he is prepared to acknowledge Azerbaijan's sovereignty over Karabakh. 
while kind of urging the EU and Russia to do something to prevent a, you know, a catastrophic new conflict. And it, what the Armenian side is also um, demanding, requesting, I don't know, some, something in between those two is um, guarantees of safety and security for a Karabakh Armenian. So that's, that's really like a really huge concession from the Armenian side. So I'm, I'm trying to, I don't want to overstep what he said, but it so basically Azerbaijan would take sovereign control back of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh territories with just promises that they won't do what they're saying that they'll do. Yeah. After the war, Armenia and Pashinyan specifically did suggest that they might lower the bar on their demands um, and kind of hinting that Karabakh's status would not be an obstacle to peace negotiations. And that's where the impasse has been, because I think it's every it's clear to everyone what Azerbaijan's um, intentions are. It's complete control over Nagorno-Karabakh. And everyone knows what that means, because Baku's rhetoric and actions have only made it clear that they don't want Armenians in that territory at all. Um, and Armenians themselves would voluntarily probably leave. And um that's where we're at. Azerbaijan wants a peace agreement, wants capitulation. Armenia can't give that to them because that means presiding over, you know, one of the most catastrophic ethnic cleansing events in the region. How many Armenians live in Nagorno-Karabakh approximately? Approximately 120,000. That's a sizable population. Yeah. And in the events of a takeover, it, I haven't seen, I haven't you know, seen any discussions, preparations for what might come next. If there is an exodus, there would be 120,000 Armenians, Karabakhi Armenians coming to Armenia and like what would happen? I'm, you know, I don't, no one's kind of dealing with that. I think the hope is that from the Armenian side that, you know, Armenia can delay the negotiations enough to buy time, maybe some diplomatic buy-in, something that will prevent at least the exodus of Armenians and the, the kind of end of Armenian life in, in the territory. As again, as a civil society expert, I have to wonder. So there's been all these um, these refugees from Karabakh into the Republic of Armenia within these last years. And have they formed any kind of a solid political bloc that has been able to put pressure on the government in any direction? No. And this is something I think. Social movement um, scholars, researchers, experts will look back on and 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 understand some something new from because it's something I don't fully understand myself. I know that um, since the 2020 war, Armenian civil society has been quite apathetic um, and tired and depressed, and I think there's a sense of helplessness, especially given this sense that, you know, this is kind of big power games at the moment. There's nothing kind of, you know, you or I, you know, metaphorically as individuals could do about this, even in terms of organizing. Um, and it's really a matter of getting Armenia to a point where some, you know, horrible escalation could be at least mitigated by either building up our national, um, sorry, defense capabilities at least to the extent that you would make um, another round of aggression costly for them. I think, you know, and I just want to underline one point here, which is one that I think a lot of experts miss is that like the total asymmetry of the two sides. 
and how weak Armenia is um, post-2020. I think that's something that international actors also don't um, appreciate enough because, you know, and, and they should be invested in some kind of addressal of this, um, just, you know, in, in terms of conflict management and resolution overall, when you have two sides that are like vastly unequal, that are, you know, engaged in some kind of protracted conflict, it doesn't bode, bode well for peace. Um, so this is, this is kind of, you know, a regional problem, um, a global one, even arguably. Has the rhetoric in Armenia been, um, like more militaristic, like have, has there been mass mobilizations, people volunteering in mass to defend their homeland and so on? Um, or is it more like just hope that everything will work itself out? Um, interestingly, that's one area in which I think Armenian civilians have been exercising some agency in the sense that they can do something. Um, so there have been these kind of volunteer um, military, you know, civil defense type paramilitary organizations that have been training civilians in basic self-defense, uh, first aid, um, shooting, you know, infantry tactics and volunteering in these groups has has increased since the 2020 war. So this is simultaneous to the Ministry of Defense kind of opening its doors more widely to um, female service members who also went to join. So there are like combat positions that were previously not open to women that are now. And Armenia still has a conscription system and it's like slowly transitioning to a professional army. Um, so some of the reforms done there have been um, aimed at kind of making service more attractive to, you know, to kind of get that kind of volunteer um, um, recruitment um, up. But in terms of the volunteer um, organizations, yeah, that's that's been growing a lot. Yeah, that's what happened in Ukraine prior to the invasion was the, the territorial defenses were being formed up. And, you know, every neighborhood was having some kind of you know, medical training or basic infantry tactics training you could go to. And then when the invasion occurred, that then became the backbone for a very large percentage of what's now the Ukrainian armed forces. So we, can, we can't discount how important that is. But you, you did mention that how Armenian civil society is now quite weak. And from my experiences in Armenia and in, in the revolution and talking to activists at the time, it seemed to be like a very thriving and powerful uh, civil society, not not quite to the extent that it was in Ukraine, but still quite potent. So what would have happened since then? Yeah. Um, and it's funny because even among during the Soviet period, um, Armenia had one of the only major protest um, events that was not a Soviet communist nature. In 1965, which was the 50th anniversary of the Armenian genocide, Armenians did a protest and um, demanded a kind of, you know, genocide memorial to be set up, et cetera, which is now done. And, I, and, and, you know, many pointed out that it was actually allowed because it didn't kind of challenge the Soviet authority in some way. But that event has been seen as this kind of seed for what came next. In 1988, there was the mass mobilization for Karabakh at the time to um, be unified with Armenia and then obviously against um, Soviet power and then you know, 1991, et cetera. And then since then, there have you know, been a series of really um, strong grassroots social mobilizations against things like uh, transportation fare rises, um, maternity leave, um, anti-mining um, activism. And 
since the war, it just it's there's this sense, I think, among Armenian society that the government is already so weak. The state is weak. Right? Let me say that the state is very weak and people are kind of there's there's a degree of self-censorship that people don't want to kind of criticize the government or open it up to any kind of criticism um, that might weaken it in this kind of vulnerable time as a state with, you know, this fragility that I mean, I want to also point out that there is a opposition norming and it's kind of linked to the former regime. It's very illiberal and pro-Russia. Um, so obviously they have no qualms kind of um, attacking the government um, rhetorically. And um, that's it's just this kind of polarized environment. I want to say, like, no one's really super happy with Nikol Pashinyan, the prime minister. Um, but I think most Armenians kind of pragmatically see him as. Well, he's a leader for now. This sucks in general, uh, but this is the best we got. It's clearly, certainly better than the alternative, the, the opposition. Um, and it's just like a matter of weathering the storm. I think my, you know, my expectation would be if things stabilize, given, you know, I don't know when that would be and how that would happen. But I would kind of expect to see civil society kind of, you know, come back. Do the Azeris seem amenable to um, these statements by Pashinyan? Are they like celebrating saying, ha ha, we won? Or are they still like going on? Yeah, we're going to go invade and like kill all of you. You see all three. <laughs> all three from from uh, the authorities. Um, so there are so no consistent <laughs> message there. No, no. I mean, it depends on the day. It depends on the context. They they welcome, you know, they have actually said that they welcome the statement. Um, and in the same kind of breath, they say, and we also hope that he will, um, Pashinyan will um, hold hold to his commitments, previous commitments about pulling out the Armenian armed forces from Nagorno-Karabakh, which has already been done. So they're kind of saying that Armenia is still just to kind of make this clear for your audience, um, this is something that wasn't clear to me um, until recently, but the Armenian Armed Forces with its conscription service before the war, before 2020, used to send a lot of conscripts to units based in Nagorno-Karabakh. After the war, part of the ceasefire agreement was that they'd be pulled out. So formally, the Armenian Armed Forces have completely pulled out of Nagorno-Karabakh. So the only body remaining that is seen and perceived as standing in the way of, uh, you know, genocide, essentially, of Armenians in Karabakh, is the um, Artsakh Defense Army. And that's something we, we haven't talked much about. Nagorno-Karabakh is not ruled as a direct part of Armenia, right? It's under the unrecognized Republic of Artsakh. Um, how has that government or, I guess, that ruling authority been taking all of this? I mean, it must be hard or difficult to have your future decided not by you, but by someone else, if that makes sense? Yeah. Um, Pashinyan was the first Armenian leader to really separate uh, politically Armenia and Artsakh. So when the first press conference Pashinyan gave uh, after being elected prime minister was in Nagorno-Karabakh. And in that press conference, which I was at, he reiterated that I don't represent you. You know, you don't vote for me because they can't. People in Nagorno-Karabakh don't participate in Armenian elections because they're a separate political entity. But the connections between the two are obviously so strong. Um, Karabakh Armenians have Armenian passports. They use the same currency, um, but their government is different. And since the war, there 
there it has been clear the difference between Stepan Aguirre and Yerevan and, and in terms of policies, because they do disagree and they had disagreed before the war, but this has been kind of clear post-war. And the Nagorno-Karabakh authorities are, you know, a little more pro-Russian, I think, by um, necessity, uh, given the Russian rule in Karabakh being preferable to Azerbaijani rule. And I think in, in other cases, in other ways of looking at it, Armenia was Karabakh's main security guarantor until the war. And then, you know, having lost the war, Armenia lost that role to Russia. So Russia is now currently the main security guarantor of Karabakh Armenians. And that's a woeful situation to be in, gentlemen. Now, interestingly, um, Anthony, I don't know if you've noticed, but I have not seen any loud statements from um, the Russian side on Pashinyan's um, kind of uh, request for negotiations. Um, I don't think the Russians have actually reacted uh, formally to, to this yet. Yeah, I don't remember seeing anything either. Um, the only thing I noticed is after the Azerbaijani armed forces installed that military checkpoint in Lachin, um, Russia fired the, the main, the head of the Russian peacekeeping contingent, Volkov, and installed um, a new guy who was the head of the, the Russian forces in Syria. Um, so clearly something happened. And I don't know if it was just for looks, you know, looking like they're trying to, you know, take care of something that went wrong or whether, you know, I don't know, maybe this guy was bought off. I mean, Azerbaijan has oil money. It's not you know crazy to kind of consider that Volkov and his troops were kind of told, look, you know, kind of look the other way. We're just going to do something really quick. Considering that the Russian government is literally held together by strings and bribes. Um, I'm almost positive that's the case. Yeah, which kind of brings it to what in Ukraine is a much more sensitive topic, which is that I'll let you give your own piece on this because I'm sure it's all very sensitive. But from the perspective of Ukraine, a lot of them are a lot of Ukrainian, especially government officials and people attached to the defense think tank kind of world, I don't know how to describe it, have been pretty anti-Armenian, um, partially just because Armenia is seen as this Russian ally that, as, as well as Armenia's close relationship with Iran, and have kind of set it up as this very, very black and white kind of scenario of with us or against us. Well, you're not with us, therefore you're against us. Whereas in our various episodes, kind of tracking this conflict recently, it's been we've been kind of giving the um, narrative that Armenia is a bit more in the, in the Ukraine position where they have a much more powerful um, oil wealthy neighbor who has genocidal rhetoric and has already invaded and is threatening to invade even more. The Ukraine without hype pod position is that we are anti-invasion. Invasion bad. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so uh, how is this scene? Um, I guess you can talk about how the Ukraine, uh, the Russo-Ukraine war is seen in Armenia. And also if you have any takes of your own, and if you want to separate those two, go ahead. Yeah, yeah it's a super complex, um, question, but one, I think so worthy of confronting, um, 
just to learn about, you know, the world <laughs> and ourselves in it. I think the the fact that both Ukraine and Azerbaijan are arguing for territorial integrity has led a lot of people to kind of look no further and kind of take that as a, okay, you know, that's it. So Azerbaijan and Ukraine are on the same side. Whereas in fact, um, the, the parallels kind of, you know, end there, it ignores the key differences in the two conflicts. The main thing of which is that in between Azerbaijan and Armenia, the, the contestation is um, between territorial integrity and self-determination. That's what the conflict is about. And there's nothing self-determination about Russia's annexation of Crimea, um, you know, or, or its unjust invasion of Ukraine. And in Nagorno-Karabakh, we have a civilian population of Armenians who are indigenous to that land and have been practicing self-rule since the Soviet Union collapsed. So, you know, this is another point worth reiterating. At no time in independent Azerbaijan's history was Karabakh ever part of it, was, you know, Karabakh ever ruled by it. And just one history tidbit I'd like to throw out is that uh, during Armenia's various times of being controlled by foreign empires, uh, Karabakh was one like Armenian statelet that existed between them that was somewhat independent even in those times. Yes. So it does have that connection as well. That's right. Um, and I think the allegation of Armenia being a Russian ally is also, in my opinion, um, you know, un unfair because it doesn't take into account the larger picture. Um, and I, you know, I've, I've written in the past that, you know, it's less an allyship than it is being a geopolitical hostage. So in the regimes preceding Pashinyans, which were um, largely illegitimate, um, you know, elections were falsified and, you know, everyone hated these leaders. Those were the years in which key infrastructure um, and sectors of the economy were sold to Russian state interests um, while the elites at the time were just enriching themselves. So it's this kind of um, situation in which, you know, you have nowhere else to go to. And um, given the fact that the U U.S. and EU in particular has kind of um, outsourced, let's say, ethno-political or like, you know, territorial um, conflicts in the, in the, you know, Eurasian continent to Russia is, is part of that. So for Armenians, it's kind of a choice between Russia and Azerbaijan or Azerbaijan and Turkey um, as a tandem, which is increasingly as something to, to contend with, given the fact that Turkish troops were embedded with Azerbaijani armed forces and were killing Armenians again, you know, a little more than a hundred years after the genocide. And that's the kind of political reality, the geopolitical reality. So I think when Armenians online get those allegations of like, basically, you deserve what you get because you're a Russian ally. It's just it's like adding insult to injury because it's not it's it's not a, a choice. It's not a choice. And um, I think Azerbaijan has been really, really good at exploiting that um, presentation, that image of Armenia as a Russian ally, as a, you know, kind of bad thing. You have a lot of um, Azerbaijani civil, you know, I'm going to put in quotation civil society actors who have Ukraine flags in their um, bios. And it's, it's almost like this um, plausible deniability because two days prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, 
Um, President Putin signed a, a wide-ranging agreement with Azerbaijan, uh, deepening their diplomatic and military cooperation. So this is something that, you know, you could argue Azerbaijan is a better partner or an actual partner of Russia as opposed to Armenia. Um, and since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Armenia's uh, practice is kind of strategic neutrality in UN Security Council resolutions, for example, um, abstaining from voting on Ukraine. So while Armenia is not condemning the invasion of Ukraine, it's it's I think it's still super kind of impressive given its position vis-a-vis Russia that it's it's not voting. Yes, I think that's something to keep in mind as well. I also just want to point out, um, and we've mentioned this a couple of times before on this podcast, but there have been um, numerous investigations showing that uh, a lot of the oil and gas that is uh, being sold by Azerbaijan, claiming it's Azeri fossil fuels, is just Russian fossil fuels with like an Azeri flag uh, staple to it. They, they are just reselling Russian products to get yeah. around sanctions. Yeah. Um, and there have been numerous investigations attesting to that. So I just wanted to, to make that very clear that um, Azerbaijan and Russia are, in fact, pretty, pretty close. Yeah. And rely on one another um, to a great degree. We've been mentioning this Azeri civil society in um, very cautious terms. But I, I, one thing that does come to my mind right now is, is there any kind of uh, cross-cultural communication between Armenia and Azerbaijan on any kind of institutional level? Uh, you mentioned that you have you know, friends within Azerbaijan, but is that any, anything substantive? Uh, I, I have more of a background in, say, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, where Although there is the issue of what's called normalization, where um, Palestinian organizations don't want to be seen as working with their occupiers, there's still a very significant amount of uh, cross-community organization and dialogue and all that, even with everything else. Uh, With Ukraine, of course, Ukrainians and Russians before the invasion there was very little in the way of a barrier. There was visa-free travel, uh, family connections, everything. Even in Donbass, there were some people who were trying to lay the groundwork of some kind of um, reintegration of Donbass with Ukraine on a diplomatic, uh, peaceful level. Is there anything going on between Armenians and Azeris that is within this kind of framework? As, as sad as it is to say, there is none. Um, there used to be these journalistic initiatives that would bring journalists from Armenia and Azerbaijan, independent journalists, to Tbilisi, which was seen as, you know, Georgia's the kind of neutral ground um, for these workshops. But I knew people involved in these initiatives and towards the end of these, which I would say they ended more or less before the 2016 war, the four day war, people are kind of complaining that, you know, it's just like the same people being invited over and over. That's how it was in Israel, Palestine. Like the, the big complaint there was, Oh, the same, like (laughs) the same, like two dozen groups of lefties that come and like uh, talk with their friends. Exactly. So the impact was super limited because there was no kind of ripple effect. There was nothing that, you know, impacted broader society. And those kind of, you know, pretty much died. And I think in when the 2020 war started, it was quite shocking and disconcerting for a lot of Armenians to see 
former, well, I don't know if they're, I guess they're former um, dissenters, Azerbaijani um, activists, who many of whom had been imprisoned by Aliyev, who were just like more war mongery than many officials were. And it just seemed like it was like the one topic that united Azerbaijani civil society. And in that kind of environment, it's, you know, there, it's obviously impossible that every single person in Azerbaijan feels that way. It's just that's not the case. But it's it's those voices are so suppressed and so marginalized. Um, and even, you know, those initiatives that, that I was talking about towards the end, Azerbaijanis couldn't um, participate anymore because once the government found out that they were kind of meeting with Armenians, um, you know, it just it started taking on this kind of illicit character, this kind of treacherous thing that they were doing. And they were, yeah, essentially kind of pushed out of those initiatives by their own government. Um, and there are some very brave um, individual Azerbaijani activists, m- most of whom are abroad for obvious reasons, um, and are increasingly subject to transnational repression. There's a guy in France named um, Mehamad Mirzali um, who's been attacked on numerous occasions. Um, they attempted to behead him, um, you know, Azerbaijani kind of goons, um, and they keep finding his address. So he's like moving from place to place. So that's that's the kind of reality that um, kind of real anti-war, I would say, pro-democracy Azerbaijani activists are dealing with, those that aren't kind of cheering on the death of Armenians. So on the one hand, you have a um, jingoistic, personalistic uh, dictatorship agitating for what amounts to genocide and uh, persecuting anti-war voices all across the world as he does it. And I think, um, Romeo, I think you just mentioned, you were saying, um, you know, Armenians want some kind of special status, but, you know, Aliyev said no. Um, Armenians will enjoy the same status as Azerbaijani citizens. And that was just, you know, the, the most laughable part of that is, you know, they don't they don't enjoy anything. <laughs> I would not see that as a good deal if I was a um, Karabakh Armenian. But I just wanted to, to wrap things up with um, just how do you see the situation progressing? Um, is like, are there war drums on the horizon? Have the war drums receded now that Pashinyan has um, basically agreed to to give up Karbakh? Um, what do you think the next steps in the, in this little um, or I guess not this little, but in this uh, conflict are going to be? Yeah, I think how you framed it, you know, war drums, I think, are receding in this case because Azerbaijan now has full control over the only road in and out of of um, Nogorno-Karabakh. Um, at the moment, Karabakh Armenians are obviously, you know, under an insane amount of um, pressure, stress, anxiety. Someone who is in Karabakh, who's been, in, you know, under blockade for almost four months, Mentioned on Instagram, she said, these are the same Azerbaijani troops that have been filmed, you know, beheading Armenian civilians. She said, there's no guarantee that when we try to pass through that they won't detain us, um, you know, um, kill us. There's there's no guarantee. There's there's absolutely no. I mean, the Azerbaijani authorities have been acting with such impunity that this is absolutely possible. But I think on the the kind of, you know, converse of that is that. Um, war is less likely because they have that. I think at some point they will make a push to exert control over the territory. And I think what's happening is 
almost a waiting game. The international community doesn't seem to respond or pay attention to anything that's less than kind of full-blown war. So I wouldn't be surprised if Azerbaijan tries to um, achieve its aims gradually, slowly, um, you know. Without getting the EU involved, for example. Exactly. So blockading with eco-activists was a first step. Installing a checkpoint is the second step. You know, remains to be seen what the third step is. But the reality is that there are more than 100,000 Armenians blockaded. Um, and, and currently, as we speak, there are four villages that due to the current um, blockade um, and what they've done is there's completely four villages have been completely cut off and they're running out of food. Um, so it's unfortunately, it feels to me like it, it can only get worse, but getting worse is maybe the only way you can get international attention and kind of change the dynamic somehow, have some kind of introduction of a new reality, a new kind of play game. Um, I, yeah, it, it doesn't look good. So with the end here, with that very down note, I, I have a pretty bad uh, expectations out of that as well. But it's hard to shift into plugs at this point, but uh, would you like to promote anything that you're working on? <laughs> uh, organizations, anything? Just a looming humanitarian catastrophe, folks. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is why I, I, I put high doubts on our ability to ever unrun ads is this specific reason. <laughs> but um, plug your plugs. Let's talk about the, the coming ethnic cleansings and the filtration camps and the, the possibility of entire villaging starving to death. That Advertisers love that stuff. Yeah, um, you know, at least I'm, I'm just glad for the opportunity to talk about this because so few people are. And I think um, as things get worse, there will be more attention on it. So, you know, you guys will be <laughs> some of the first to have um, shed light on this. So um, thank you for that. Um, I have a very irregular podcast with uh, my co-host Anna. It's called Obscuristan and it's on all the podcast platforms. We talk about obscure, bizarre events, people in the region from a decolonial perspective. So we try to kind of decenter Russia. Um, we're taking a turn to kind of focus more on Armenian issues. We didn't want it to be an Armenian podcast, but it's turning into one and that's OK. Um, and that's pretty much it. Wonderful. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for. Yep. Thank you very much for being here. And. As you can imagine, um, watching. Uh, this situation unfolds is not uh, what I would call popcorn time, um, but yeah. I sincerely hope that um, international actors who can actually affect the situation like the EU, for example, in the US, um, start taking a greater interest in this conflict. But um, as we've discussed on um, in earlier episodes, that that doesn't seem to be the case, but the, the hope is there. Um, since currently, at least I personally don't see any um, possible non-genocide resolution to the situation, aside from um, one of the big geopolitical blocks getting involved that isn't Russia. If you would like to support this podcast, you can share us with your friends, your family on social media, like, subscribe, comment, rate, all the things to bump us up in the algorithms. And if you would like to financially support us, you can go to patreon.com slash Ukraine without hype. So now we'd like to take our time to thank our patrons at the $5 a month and up level. 
So thank you very much to Deborah Grazer, Will Stevens, David Shepard, Dawson, Giorgio, Ivanka Kratskaya, Michael Drucker, Anna Karen Person, Anonymous, Debbie, Etienne, Justin Devendorf, Kevin, Michael, Mike Perone, Sam Toman, Shieldwall, Silas Frank, Theo, Adam Poppenheimer, Aiden McDonald, Alex Grochmull, Anastasia, Barbara, Big Rob, Captain Technical, Chris Bennington, Chris Walker, Crystal Burns, Daniel Spring, David Wall, Emily Bavona, <clears throat> Eric Honnold, Grace Krause, Had to Laugh, Jacob Poem, James Wise, Jenny Louise, Jerd, Julia Lindsay, Kristen Swanland, Laura De Leon, Levy Grove, Lottie, Marguerite, Matt Miller, Melissa Caselco, MJ Noster, uh, Anonymous Person, Noam Hart, Paul Bailey, Rainy McNerlin, Sanjay, Scott Gengris, Scott Tokeryuk, Steve Bien, Stuart Akers, T. Bart, Thomas Sobiek, Veronica Aim, and Victoria Leontineva. Thank you all very much for your support. You're what make this all possible. So until next week, Slava Ukraini! Hey, hey,